the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. What's the second commandment of the church? The second commandment of the church is to keep the days of fasting and abstinence appointed by the church. What are fasting days? Fasting days are days on which we are allowed to take only one full meal. Well, on a fasting day, we should just try to make a noticeable difference to the amount of food we eat. We should cut down the amount we eat in a pretty obvious way. And we are allowed to have only one real ordinary meal. And for breakfast, say, you know, some coffee and a slice of toast or something. And then in the evening, or at the meal, which is not our main meal, something light. But we should certainly, on fasting days, we shouldn't just allow them to go by do it, getting as much as we can. They're meant to be days of penance. Which are the fasting days? The fasting days are Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Mind you, there are people who fast more than that. I know a man who fasts every Saturday in honor of Our Lady. And there are people who fast every Friday thinking this is the day our Lord died for us. But this is the minimum that the Church insists on. However, fasting doesn't count. It doesn't start for people until they're 21. So children, then, they're not obliged. They need the food. They're not obliged to fast at all. What are days of abstinence? Days of abstinence are days in which you're forbidden to take flesh meat, which are the days of abstinence. The days of abstinence in England and Wales are Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. In other countries, of course, there could be abstinence every day of the, every Friday of the year. I don't know. Until recently, until about 15 years ago, I suppose, in England, there used to be abstinence every Friday. But it's been left to the hierarchy of the various countries to decide which of the days of fasting and absence are going to be in their countries, just like which are days of holy days of obligation. These things come within the competence of the hierarchy of the bishops. Why does the Church command us to fast and abstain? The Church commands us to fast and abstain that so we may mortify the flesh and satisfy God for our sins. So fasting is good, and to deny ourselves food sometimes, or drink sometimes, these things are good, because we've sinned in these ways, and it's good to try to show God that we're serious in our sorrow for sin, to try to make up for our sins, and make our body obey us, because it so often disobeyed us. Now we come on to the commandment about confession. How often should we go to confession? If we've been guilty of serious sin, we should go to confession as soon as possible, but never less than once a year. Mind you, if a person hasn't been guilty of serious sin, they're not bound to go to, go to confession at all. For the first few centuries of the Church, until around the year 800, Catholics only went to confession if there was serious sin. And so there must have been millions of Catholics who never used this sacrament at all. People who in those years of persecution in the first fervor of the church, they never lost their baptismal innocence. They never lost that life of grace. And so if there's no serious sin, people are not bound to go to confession at all. Nevertheless, the practice of going to confession for venial sins, for slight sins, has come into the church under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And I always recommend Catholics to go to confession at least once a month. 
It's only people who are scrupulous, really. It's best for them to stay away from confession. How soon are children bound to go to confession? Children are bound to go to confession as soon as they've come to the use of reason and are capable of serious sin. When are children generally supposed to come to the use of reason? Children are generally supposed to come to the use of reason about the age of seven years. Now, obviously a child of that age can scarcely turn away from God in a serious way. But it's very good for them to start going to confession at that age. Why? So that they get used to it. So that going to confession isn't difficult for them. And it comes quite easy. So that later on, if serious sin should come, come into their lives, they know what to do about it. They've got used to, to confession. They've come to enjoy confession and find they get help in confession. And so when, if sin suddenly comes into their life, then they go along to confession. And then for the first time, perhaps, they really realize how, how loving God their Father is and what a wonderful sacrament it is. What's the fourth commandment of the Church? The fourth commandment of the Church is to receive the Blessed Sacrament at least once a year, and that at Easter or thereabouts. Though, of course, that is rather starvation diet, and wise Catholics go to communion much more often, weekly at least. How soon are Christians bound to receive the Blessed Sacrament? Christians are bound to receive the Blessed Sacrament as soon as they are capable of distinguishing the body of Christ from ordinary bread and are judged to be sufficiently instructed. Again, around the time of seven years. And children ordinarily, they go to confession and then shortly afterwards they make their first Holy Communion. And innocence takes the place of instruction. They don't have to be all that well instructed in the faith as long as they realize who our Lord is and realize what it is or rather whom it is that they receive in Holy Communion the church says well they're ready to receive him in the early church even little children used to be given communion when they had communion under both kinds as it was in the early church if a woman came up to communion with a baby in her arms the priest might dip his finger in the chalice and give it to the baby to suck. The reason they're not made to receive communion for those early years now is because they can't lose that life of grace. It can't be weakened by sin or can't be weakened too much by sin. And so there's no special need for the Holy Eucharist. But when they can start turning away from God seriously, that's when they really need this divine medicine this antidote to sin, so to speak. What's the fifth commandment of the Church? The fifth commandment of the Church is to contribute to the support of our pastors. Is it a duty to contribute to the support of religion? It is a duty to contribute to the support of religion according to our means, so that God may be duly honoured and worshipped and the kingdom of his Church extended. Well, we have to help the Church. You know, yes, yesterday we had a second collection ordered for the needs of the diocese. So I announced it at Mass and put a plate outside with a notice there for the needs of the diocese. Well, when I saw all the number of pennies in it, I felt quite ashamed. 
you know, we get our life, our divine life, when it's from God, it becomes to us through the church. And if I find that my bishop needs money to run the diocese, and I give him a penny, I think that's awful. We ought to, to love our mother of the church, and we ought to love our bishop, and we ought to try to help him in all the various projects and things that he wants to do. What's the sixth commandment of the church? The sixth commandment of the church is not to marry within certain degrees of kindred, nor to solemnize marriage at the forbidden times. Which are the times in which it's forbidden to marry with solemnity? The times in which it's forbidden to marry with solemnity without special leave are from the first Sunday of Advent till after Christmas Day and from Ash Wednesday till after Easter Sunday. That's to say during Advent and during Lent. And I suppose you can have an ordinary sort of marriage, but the idea is that you don't have a real grand wedding with organs and all sorts of things. You try to keep those special days of rejoicing uh, outside Advent and Lent. Well, we're coming on now to the sacraments. And the sacraments are God's great gift to us poor sinners. God, who wants us to live in heaven with him forever, and has left us all the means that we need to get there. And this sacramental system is a main characteristic of the Catholic Church. It's a main characteristic of the Church which Jesus left. He didn't just come and talk to us and then go back to heaven and leave us to get on with it. He left us our bishops, whom he guaranteed he'd keep teaching us the truth all the way through to the end of time. And because we're so very earthy and materialistic, he's left us material things to help us heavenward. After all, he himself took a body made of flesh and blood. He really did. And we poor creatures of flesh and blood, we know we're made to live forever in heaven when all this world is, is gone and when the sun is burnt out, we'll still, please God, be in heaven. And it all starts off with these material bodies that we have now. And God's left us material sacraments, at least sacraments that have their material aspect, but contain within a divine power, as we shall see. What's a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward sign of inward grace, ordained by Jesus Christ, by which grace is given to ourselves. Outward sign may be bread, water, wine, oil, words. Ordained by Jesus Christ, obviously everything comes from Him, by which grace is given to our soul. Because He's God, He can attach to these material signs a divine life, a divine gift. Do the sacraments always give grace? Yes, the sacraments always give grace to those who receive them worthily. If we place no obstacle in the way, the sacraments are received. That's how it is that a baby receives the grace of baptism. He can't place any obstacle in the way. Yesterday we had confirmation in the cathedral, and I took an autistic child along. Her mother was with her, but this child's never learned to talk or understand. But she received the sacrament. She can't place any obstacle in the way of it. 
So these sacraments, they come to us from God and they help develop in us this life of grace that we get. Whence have the sacraments the power of giving grace? The sacraments have the power of giving grace from the merits of Christ's precious blood which they apply to our souls. Ought we to have a great desire to receive the sacraments? We ought to have a great desire to receive the sacraments because they are the chief means of our salvation. This life that we get, it comes from God and we nourish it by feeding off God. And we feed off God in two ways, by prayer and by the sacraments. If you meet with a Muslim who is a very holy person, how does he get like that? By an intense life of prayer. But these sacraments that God's given us, they can make it much easier for us somehow to have access to God. So we should want them. We're now coming on to the word character. Very early on in the church, they realized that some sacraments could never be repeated. For instance, if a persecution arose, and a Christian, in fear of persecution, denied Christ and reverted to paganism, and then when the persecution ended, wanted to come back to living as a Christian, he was never baptized again, or if a priest uh, under threat of persecution uh, reverted to paganism, and then when the persecution ended, wanted to resume his life as a priest, well, if the bishop took him back, doubtless he'd give him a good penance, but a, a person was never ordained a second time. They realized that some sacraments could never be given a second time, and so they concluded that the reception of those sacraments did something to the soul that was permanent. And they called it a character. The Roman soldiers had a tattoo mark placed on them. And this was uh, indelible. It couldn't be got out. And they said that it's like that with some of the sacraments. Is a character given to the soul by another sacraments? A character is given to the soul by the sacraments of baptism, confirmation and holy order. What's a character? A character is a mark or seal on the soul which cannot be effaced, and therefore the sacrament conferring it may not be repeated. How many sacraments are there? There are seven sacraments. Baptism, Confirmation, Holy Eucharist, Penance, the Anointing of the Sick, Holy Order and Matrimony. We'll be going through those one by one. We've now come to the Sacrament of Baptism, number 256 in the Catechism. Well, Baptism... It's a wonderful sacrament. It gives us the divine life. And I'll just say a few things about it. Because although we understand quite a lot about baptism, I suppose, if we really saw what it did to us, we'd be lost in amazement. Because we're just creatures. And when we're baptized, the Holy Trinity, God who created everything, He comes into us in a special way. And his indwelling presence gives us a life. And this life is the life of Jesus. Baptism makes us one with Jesus. It makes us temples of the Holy Trinity. There's a prayer I say in the mornings. O most Holy Trinity, I adore you, dwelling by grace in my soul. O most Holy Trinity, Dwelling by grace in my soul, 
make me love you more and more. O most holy Trinity, dwelling by grace in my soul, sanctify me more and more. Stay with me, Lord, be my true joy. It's a very nice prayer, because we have God living in us in this special way. And so we can always turn to God within us. And we need to watch our hearts too, really, because we have to try to make sure that our hearts aren't swamped by worldliness. The human heart is like a television screen with three channels. God, evil spirits, and nature. That's to say, thoughts come into our minds prompted by grace, prompted by God's grace. Thoughts can come into our minds prompted by an evil spirit. Or thoughts could come into our minds which are just natural, and, uh, but not uh, uplifted by grace. For instance, if I am wondering how I could possibly start trying to get to daily Mass, I suppose that's a thought that would come to me from God. If I start thinking thoughts of bitterness, or envy, or hatred, these could be thoughts prompted by an evil spirit, or thoughts against the faith, thoughts of rebellion against the church. These thoughts, I suppose, would come from an evil spirit. And if I find myself wondering what's going to be for dinner, I suppose that could be just my own natural thoughts. Well, we need to try to control these things, to try to keep a watch over our interior, a guard over our heart, so that we're aware of what we're thinking and why we're thinking it. Otherwise, I can give way to a hundred sins of pride in a day without realizing it. I could be full of, of sort of vanity. It's a good thing to keep a watch over our hearts because our hearts are the temple where the Holy Trinity lives. And then baptism makes us one with Jesus. This is an intimacy that's so close. If you don't mind, I'm going to recite a little poem to you. It was written by a priest seeing courting couples out and feeling a twinge of sort of envy in his heart and thinking to himself, how unworthy to think like that. He wrote this. I passed two lovers in a lane, lovers for all to see. Hand in hand they walked along, they did not notice me. But then I thought, far better off are my sweet Lord than they, for they have just these few short hours, but I'm with you all day, and all night too, and all the week, and all the whole year through, and all eternity as well, I'll always be with you. And they were there just hand in hand, but your embrace of me is closer far than human love can ever hope to be. We have an inward union, the like of which is none. You live in me, and I in you. Our love has made us one. And this our love is pure and chaste. It cannot tire or cloy. A gift divine, it fills my heart with more than human joy. So teach all lovers, Lord, I pray, that while indeed it's true, love reigns supreme, yet teach them this, their first love must be you. Baptism makes us so close to Jesus and makes our souls so holy 
We have to thank God for this gift that he's given us. We never deserved it. Why should God so love us as to want to come and live in our soul? Great mystery. We have many mysteries in our religion. The mystery of the Holy Trinity, the mystery of the incarnation of the Holy Eucharist. But I suppose the greatest mystery of all is why God should love me. God who knows us through and through. Somehow he loves us and wants to come and live in us. Let's go on to the Catechism Answers. What's baptism? Baptism is a sacrament which cleanses us from original sin, makes us Christians, children of God, and members of the Church. When we are baptized, we are baptized into the Church, which is the body of Christ. And we made made one with Jesus, ourselves living in him, he living in us, as he put it, the branch in the vine and the vine in the branch. Does baptism also forgive actual sins? Baptism also forgives actual sins, with all punishment due to them, when it's received in proper dispositions by those who've been guilty of actual sin. And so, when a person's baptized, who's never been baptized before at all, then, when he's baptized, all his sins are forgiven. Who's the ordinary minister of baptism? The ordinary minister of baptism is a priest, but anyone may baptize in case of necessity when a priest cannot be had. How is baptism given? Baptism is given by pouring water on the head of the child, saying at the same time these words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. It could be any water. There was a famous case happened in the States a few years back of a boy and a girl out swimming. She was a Catholic and he was a Jew. And he had his leg bitten off by a shark. And there was blood all over the place. And she dragged him up to, off to the shore. And he was lying on the sand there, and he was obviously dying. And she said to him, Would you like to die a Christian? And he said, Yes. So she got some seawater in her hand and baptized him. Anyone can baptize. So if ever there's a baby, say, who's dying and not yet baptized, then you should be, be careful to make sure that you baptize the baby to make that baby the child of God and the co-heir with Christ of heaven. What do we promise in baptism? We promise in baptism to renounce the devil and all his works and pomps. What are the devil's pomps? I suppose the empty show of this world, the idea that what we're in this world for is to get rich, all that sort of thing we renounce when we're baptized. Is baptism necessary for salvation? Baptism is necessary for salvation because Christ has said, Unless a man be born again of water and the Holy Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Well, we, bat- we distinguish three sorts of baptism. Because the Church has always said that people who are in good faith and lead good lives and worship God according to their lights, according to their conscience, such people save their souls. And she distinguishes three sorts of baptism. Baptism of water, baptism of blood, baptism of desire. Baptism of water, the ordinary baptism we're talking about. This can be received by immersion, by going down into the water, or by sprinkling, or by pouring water over the person. The main thing is that water has to flow over the skin. That's baptism of water, baptism of blood. It's happened in the history of the Church that people who are under instruction to become Christians but not yet baptized, being caught up in a persecution, 
bore witness to their allegiance to Christ and were killed for the faith. That's called the baptism of blood. And they've always been reckoned to be the equals in every way of anyone who's been actually baptized with water. What's baptism of desire? Well, a good pagan, or a good Muslim, or a good Jew, who doesn't know about Christ, but is leading a good life. And if he did know about Christ, and did know about what Christ offered, he would desire baptism. If such a person lives and dies in that way, the Church says that such a person has received the baptism of desire and so saves his soul. Actually, that word baptism, originally, the root comes from being plunged into water. And as I said, baptism was originally given by a person being immersed in water. But obviously, if a person wanted to become a Christian in the middle of the Sahara Desert, there's not enough water around to baptize him in that way. And so the church says, well, you can baptize in any way as long as the water flows. But that baptism by immersion it does suggest our Lord's descent into the grave. He went in a dead body and he came out glorious and immortal with his new life. And so men go into the waters of baptism, merely human, and they come out now baptized, made one with the risen Christ, living by his life. What's confirmation? Confirmation is a sacrament by which we receive the Holy Spirit in order to make us strong and perfect Christians and soldiers of Jesus Christ. Who's the ordinary minister of confirmation? The ordinary minister of confirmation is a bishop. Though when people, when adults are received into the church or baptized, the priest doing this can at the same time confirm them. He's given this power by the bishop. How does the bishop administer the sacrament of confirmation? The bishop administers the sacrament of confirmation by praying that the Holy Spirit may come down upon those who are to be confirmed and by laying his hand on them and making the sign of the cross with chrism on their foreheads at the same time pronouncing certain words. What are the words used in confirmation? The words used in confirmation are these. He says the person's name first, Mary or John or whatever it is be sealed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. We need confirmation in order to enable us to bear witness to Christ in a hostile world. If a person is working in an office where he's the only Christian, well, to help all those other people and to help draw them to Christ in the way God perhaps wants him to, he needs the sacrament of confirmation. We're baptized into the church militant, a little child doesn't have to fight. But when he gets older, then he'll need to. And that's when he needs the sacrament of confirmation. The next question is number 266. What is the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist? Well, I'll say something to begin with about the Holy Eucharist, about the Blessed Sacrament. This is the name that we give to the consecrated bread and wine which we use at Mass which are turned by God's power into the body and blood of Christ, has many names. We call it the Holy Eucharist, Eucharist being a Greek word meaning thanksgiving. 
We call it the Blessed Sacrament. Well, there are seven sacraments, but this one, it's Jesus himself, so we call it the Blessed Sacrament. When the breads are brought up for Mass at the offertory, we just call them altar breads, but after consecration, we call them hosts, H-O-S-T, hosts, because the Latin word for victim is hostia, and so this bread becomes the victim of our sacrifice, and so we call it a host. When the Blessed Sacrament is given to a dying person in Holy Communion, we call it viaticum. The Latin word for way is via, and viaticum means food for a journey. And so the Holy Eucharist is given to that person as food for their last journey, I mean out of this world. We call it the bread of life. Well, where shall I start talking about the Holy Eucharist? I think the best way to start is to think of the Jews when they'd escaped from Egypt and they were making their way through the wilderness to the promised land. And God fed them miraculously with manna during their journeying through the desert. This manna fell every day and this is what kept them going. And this miracle of God's, they, they never forgot it, how God cared for them in this way. Then our Lord's miracles. You remember the first one was at Cana in Galilee when he turned the water into wine. At that wedding feast they ran out of wine and he turned the water into wine. And then another miracle of his, the only one recorded by all four evangelists, when he fed the five thousand with five little loaves and two fishes. A great miracle where he multiplied bread to feed that multitude. The following night, when the apostles were rowing back across the lake, our Lord came walking to them over the water, perhaps you remember. The insubstantial water bore up the weight of his physical body. And this prepared for his discourse on the bread of life, which he gave in the synagogue at Capernaum the following day. Really, you ought to read this for yourself. It comes in the sixth chapter of St. John's Gospel. It's a wonderful chapter. And you can read it and read it again. The first thing to note about this chapter is that what Jesus asks for is faith. This is what he wants. He fed the crowd with those few bits of bread. He walked on the water in order to try to show his apostles anyhow that he was more than merely human so that they should always believe whatever he told them. The next day when the Jews found him in the synagogue at Capernaum they asked him what they should do to please God. He said, this is what you should do. Believe in the man whom he sent. What Jesus wants is faith. And then he went on to talk about the bread of life. And the Jews wanted this bread of life. They wanted free bread, free bread for the rest of their lives. And then our Lord says, no, he, he's the bread of life. He's the bread that came down from heaven. And the bread that he's going to give is his flesh for the life of the world. Well, this revolted them. And they started grumbling and saying how absurd but our blessed Lord didn't explain things away. He just repeated what he'd said and said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man 
and drink his blood, you won't have life in you. And many of them just pushed off. They thought, this, is, this man's gone mad. Our Lord didn't call them back and say, look, you've got me wrong, I'm just speaking figuratively. No, he turned to the twelve and said, will you go too? St. John comments there that our Lord knew that there were some who didn't believe. St. John doesn't say there were some who didn't understand. Nobody understood. Our Lord wasn't looking for understanding. What he's looking for in this matter, in this mystery, is faith. And he turns to the twelve and says, will, will you go too? And St. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You've got the words of eternal life. And we believed and have known that you are the Christ, the Son of God. St. Peter said, we believed and we've known. Faith comes first, then understanding. Well, it's a great mystery, but it's always been believed from the very beginning that our Lord meant what he said. And at the Last Supper, when he took the bread and said, this is my body, when he took the cup of wine and said, this is the cup of my blood, from the very beginning, and there's plenty of documentary evidence to support this, it's been believed by Christians that at the Last Supper, what the apostles ate and drank was Christ, under the appearances of bread and wine. And when he said to his apostles, do this in memory of me, he gave them the power to do exactly what he'd done, take bread and wine, and by God's power, turn it into, into Jesus. A priest told me about four years ago in Ealing. There was a woman in his parish. She'd been an Anglican, but she used to come to Mass every day, seven days a week. And then eventually, after many years, she became a Catholic. And then a few years later, she got cancer and died. Well, four days before she died, she told this priest that once in her Anglican days, she'd seen our Lord at, at Mass. After the consecration, the priest holds up the host for everyone to adore our Lord. And when he held up the host, instead of seeing this white disc, she saw our Lord himself, and he was looking straight at her and beckoning to her to come forward. And she was terrified, and she got up and ran out of the church. And as she was going out of the door, one of the other priests was coming in, and he said to her, when are you, when are you going to become a Catholic? They all knew she wasn't a Catholic. And she said, oh, soon, Father, very soon. And she did. But then before she died, she felt she had to tell somebody that she'd actually seen our Lord. But anyhow, our Blessed Lord is there in the Holy Eucharist, by God's power. And there have been a number of saints who've always known where the Blessed Sacrament was. If they came into a big church and, they, and the Blessed Sacrament was there on some altar, St. Francis Borgia was one, he always knew at once where the Blessed Sacrament was. And he went straight for that chapel. That's why you won't find Catholic churches so often empty. We can worship God anywhere. He's here in this room where I am, as God, but not as Jesus of Nazareth. Our blessed Lord, as the God-man, he's in heaven and he's in the Holy Eucharist. And that's why people like to go and kneel in front of the tabernacle, just to keep our Lord company. Where I was in the seminary, we had an old brother called Brother Gerard. He was quite old, and he was in the infirmary. And there was a chapel in the infirmary, 
and he used to spend most of his day in the chapel there. And somebody once asked him, do you pray all the time, brother? And he said, sometimes, and sometimes I just sit and read him out loud out of the Daily Mail. He just wanted to keep our Lord company. And, well, please God, one day you'll realize what, what it means to be with our Lord there in his company before the Blessed Sacrament. Let's go on with the Catechism. What's the Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist? The Sacrament of the Holy Eucharist is the true body and blood of Jesus Christ, together with his soul and divinity, under the appearances of bread and wine. How are the bread and wine changed into the body and blood of Christ? The bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ by the power of God, to whom nothing is impossible or difficult. When are the bread and wine changed into the body and blood of Christ? The bread and wine are changed into the body and blood of Christ when the words of consecration ordained by Jesus Christ are pronounced by the priest in Holy Mass. That change of bread and wine into Christ we call transubstantiation. The substance of bread and the substance of wine that changed into Christ, the appearances of bread and wine, sure they remain. But what the thing actually is, the substance of it, this changes. At Mass, when the priest holds up the Blessed Sacrament after consecration, it's a good thing to look at our Lord, well, you can't see him, of course, but to say, my Lord and my God, which St. Thomas said on, well, the Sunday after Easter, when he actually saw our Lord's risen body. You say it in your heart, of course, not out loud, but to say, my Lord and my God. It's what uh, people do do. Why has Christ given himself to us in the Holy Eucharist? Christ has given himself to us in the Holy Eucharist to be the life and the food of our souls. He that eateth me, the same also shall live by me. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. In case I forget to say it later, when you go to Holy Communion, it's very important to make a thanksgiving afterwards. It's bad just to treat such a gift negligently. The word altar, A-L-T-A-R, tells us five things we can talk to Jesus about after Holy Communion. A for adore, he's come in a very humble way, but the angels are adoring him, our blessed lady is, we should too. And so we can adore him, who's come to us in this way. L for love, sometimes maybe we behave as though we didn't love him, this is the time to assure him that we love him with all our hearts. T for thank. Well, I always thank God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I thank each of the divine persons. I thank our Blessed Lady too, and St. Joseph. It's, it's very good to be careful about gratitude. Want of gratitude tends to dry up the source of, of God's gifts. So it's good to try to be serious about your thanksgiving after communion at least till the end of Mass, and if you can, for a few minutes after, just to stay with our Lord, thanking Him, talking to Him, He's given Himself totally to you, 100%. What does He want? That you should offer yourself totally to Him, 100%. Is Christ received whole and entire under either kind alone? Christ is received whole and entire under either kind alone. And I may say, under a tiny fragment that is to say, when a person receives 
the Blessed Sacrament. Just because he hasn't received a chalice, he hasn't received less. And if, as happens in wartime perhaps, the priest has to break the host into little fragments, each person receives Jesus entire. In order to receive the Blessed Sacrament worthily, what's required? In order to receive the Blessed Sacrament worthily, it's required that we be in a state of grace and keep the prescribed fast. Water does not break this fast. Why do we fast? Well, it's easier to have a spiritual hunger if there's a certain amount of physical hunger. We should receive this sacrament with a desire. St. Augustine says, this sacrament requires a hunger of the inner man. What is it to be in a state of grace? To be in a state of grace is to be free from mortal sin and pleasing to God. Is it a great sin to receive Holy Communion in mortal sin? It is a great sin to receive Holy Communion in mortal sin. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh judgment to himself. If a person's quite certain they've committed mortal sin, then, sure, they should go to confession before Mass. But unless they're certain it's mortal sin, then they should just make an act of contrition and go to Holy Communion. I say this because some people, they tend to be more Catholic than the Pope, and they tend to get scrupulous. Holy Communion is given us by Jesus because we're his little children and we need him. Holy Communion is not a prize for being good. It's a medicine which we sinners need in order to help us to be good. Is the Blessed Eucharist a sacrament only? The Blessed Eucharist is not a sacrament only, it's also a sacrifice. What is a sacrifice? A sacrifice is the offering of a victim by a priest to God alone in testimony of his being the Sovereign Lord of all things. I'll say a bit about that. Sacrifice is offering a gift to God. Now, offering gifts is a way of speaking, and sometimes it's the most eloquent way there is. It's happened a few times when I've been out visiting. The children have come and given me bits of food. I remember once, a little boy, about two, I'd been talking to his mother, and after a bit, he came up to me and offered me a bit of biscuit he'd been sucking. So I thanked him, and I took it, and I broke it in two. I kept the dry bit for myself, and I gave him back the wet bit. And I ate my bit, and he ate his bit, and it was quite solemn and liturgical. And this is what happens in the Mass, in a way. We offer our Father in Heaven something. He thanks us, accepts it, and gives us it back in communion. Offering gifts is a very effective way of saying something that we don't know quite how to put into words. A Nigerian I was instructing a few years ago, one week he wanted to talk to me about his father because he was going home on holiday and he hadn't spoken to his father for four years. He said it was his father's fault, some business about money. So I said, even if it was the father's fault, it was the son's duty to bring about a reconciliation. And I suggested that he take his father some nice present. I suggested a beautiful crucifix. He said his father wasn't a Christian. So I said, well, take him a bottle of whiskey. Well, he did this. And when he got back to London, he said everything had gone off fine. Well, you can imagine the scene. Rather sort of awkward in a way, but he offers his father this bottle of whiskey. as I brought you a souvenir from London. And the father thanks him and unwraps it and opens it and pours out a couple of drinks. And they have a drink together. 
and with mo- no more than perhaps 20 words spoken on, on either side, that very complex, unhappy situation was very nicely settled. And that bottle of whiskey, that gift, and the drink together, it said more than if he made a speech for an hour and a half. So when we're talking to Almighty God, what are we going to say? Because God's so holy and we are sinners. God's infinitely rich and, and we are poor. God's infinitely wise and we are so stupid. What are we going to say to God? God understands our difficulty. He puts a gift in our hands. We offer him this gift. He accepts it. And then we eat our share. And so, offering a sacrifice, offering a gift, it says things which the heart doesn't quite know how to put into words. If you've never done this before, it'll be difficult to get into, into it. But if you, if you try, I think you'll find it'll work. After all, when a fellow loves a girl, what's he do? He, he wants to give her something. It's instinctive. And it's in, instinctive to the human race to want to offer sacrifice to God. What do we offer? Jesus. That's the gift we offer. Except now, no longer merely Jesus, because your baptism has made you one with Jesus. And so, when you offer Jesus, you offer yourself with him. That's one of the great differences between Calvary and the Mass. On Calvary, Jesus was the only priest, the only victim. In the Mass, all those who are baptized into Jesus, they're priests with him, they're victims with him. The Mass is the sacrifice in which the whole Church offers herself to the Father in union with her divine head. Now, the Mass, it's one with Calvary. I'll try to explain that. I'll try to draw some pictures. There are three pictures on the top line, three on the bottom line. That shag creatures a sheep. The person with it is a Jew in Old Testament times, and the person he's speaking to is a temple priest. And he's saying to the priest, I wonder whether you'd please offer the annual sacrifice for my family. Offer this sheep in a thanksgiving sacrifice to make up for our sins, to ask God's blessings for the year to come. And the priest is saying, thank you, yes, I'll do that. And the second picture, the priest is killing the sheep. You see the blood going down on the ground. And in the third picture, you see the sheep on the altar of sacrifice with the smoke going up. In the first picture, the victim is about to be killed. In the second picture, the victim is being killed. In the third picture, the victim has been killed. And yet you'll agree it's one sacrifice. It's one sacrifice because we have the same victim and the same sacrificial intention. Now look at the bottom three pictures. In the first we see our Lord at the Last Supper. He's saying, this is my body, this is my blood. In the second picture we see our Lord on the cross, dying for our sins. In the third picture we see the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. In the first picture the victim is about to be killed. In the second picture, the victim is being killed. In the third picture, the victim has been killed and is risen again to die no more. And they're one sacrifice because we have the same victim and the same sacrificial intention. 
And so we'd say that from the sacrifice of the Last Supper through the sacrifice of the cross to the very last Mass on the last day of the world at the end of time is one sacrifice. Many offerings of the one sacrifice. In God's infinite wisdom and love He's found this way of enabling us to offer this divine sacrifice of Calvary again and again to make up for our innumerable sins. We just go through the questions. What is the sacrifice of the new law? The sacrifice of the new law is the Holy Mass. What is the Holy Mass? The Holy Mass is the sacrifice of the body and blood of Jesus Christ really present on the altar under the appearances of bread and wine and offered to God for the living and the dead. Pope Pius said a lovely thing, repeated again in the Council and by Pope Paul in different ways. He said, The liturgy is nothing more nor less than the exercise of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is a living and continuous reality through all ages to the end of time. At every Mass, Jesus is the invisible High Priest. He is the principal celebrant. Is the Holy Mass one and the same sacrifice with that of the cross? The Holy Mass is one and the same sacrifice with that of the cross, inasmuch as Christ, who offered himself a bleeding victim on the cross to his heavenly Father, continues to offer himself in an unbloody manner on the, on the altar, through the ministry of his priests. For what ends is the sacrifice of the Mass offered? The sacrifice of the Mass is offered for four ends, first, to give supreme honor and glory to God, secondly, to thank him for all his benefits, thirdly, to satisfy God for our sins, and to obtain the grace of repentance, and fourthly, to obtain all other graces and blessings through Jesus Christ. Is the Mass also a memorial of the Passion and Death of our Lord? The Mass is a memorial of the Passion and Death of our Lord, for Christ at his last supper said, Do this for a commemoration of me. And the separate consecration of body and blood, of bread and wine, calls that to mind. On Calvary, his body and blood were really separated, his body on the cross, his blood on the ground. And that separate consecration vividly calls this to mind. We better end there. God bless you.